Welcome back, Hemming Brains. We're talking about uh, chapter 19. No, chapter 20. Uh, but we're not really talking about it because no one had anything to say about it because this book sucks so bad. So I guess we just keep reading. Did have a comment on the um, subreddit though, not on the post, but just a comment um, saying uh, any plans to start the list over from the Good Life '93? Not personally, mate. I'm I won't be. I'm going to be wrapping up my daily podcast journey at the end of this book. But all the discussions are archived, so you can go on the journey again. Uh, you know, every book we've read. Every post, they're all itemized out if you look in the um, sidebar on the on the Reddit. Um, and I would also say that A Year of War and Peace, over on the subreddit called A Year of War and Peace, uh, will be looping back at the start of next year and every year on the 1st of January. They'll start War and Peace, so that's one part of the journey at least that you can go along with on a daily basis. And uh, yeah, all the podcast episodes, of course, are over on the uh, the podcast so, yeah, there's options for to at least listen along or, or you know, read along through the other uh, posts. Now, yesterday we finished book two of Fail, Hail and Farewell, which was called Ave, I think, or something like that. And, um, oh, Selve, sorry, Selve. Today we start Vale. I just thought it was worth mentioning that, um, you know, we finished... We finished, a, uh, you know, with one of the major milestones of the book. Book two is finished, uh, and no one had a single thing to say about it. And I'm not saying that any judgment against us. I'm saying against the book. Like that whole book, book two, was atrocious. Probably is an understatement. Like that was some of the worst writing ever. That was twenty chapters, twenty long boring chapters about just one little, you know, idea that he's had about there's no good Catholic novelists, and that's it. 20 long chapters about that, a whole book about that. Absolutely atrocious to subject anyone to something so boring. Vale, chapter one, goes like this. It was about the time of the publication of my letter to the Irish Times mentioned in the last pages of Self that I received... From the French consul, an invitation to dinner to meet the secretary of the consulate, M. Orange, a young man, a poet, or moistly publiovoy, French words. The Moral Monastery and Madame are among my pleasantest memories in Dublin. And on the night in question, when it was time to bid our host and hostess good night, I proposed to Orange that we should walk back to Dublin together, thinking that perhaps he might like to talk French poetry with me. As we passed through the garden gate, he muttered, Voilà une soirée bien passée. He was quite right. We had passed a pleasant evening in pleasant company, but when he repeated the same words at the same place the next time we dined in Morales, I began to read into them a hidden meaning, that we were nearer our graves than we had been earlier in the afternoon, and when he repeated the same words some weeks afterwards, and in the same place they took on still another meaning, that we being men of letters would have done better had we stayed at home reading books under our lamps, and as we strode along together I resolved that I would reacquire the habit of reading without it occurring to me that the temptation is always by the talker to lay his book 
aside and go out to look up a friend, especially in Dublin, where casual visiting is our single pleasure. And Orange's criticism of life leaving me no peace, I begged Teresa one evening after she had removed the cloth to tell whosoever called that I was not at home. And when she had put my coffee on the table, I said, the moment has come for me to pick out a book from the shelves, but which? I knew that a large volume containing Shakespeare's plays stood on the third shelf and that I should find it in a well of pure literary literature undefiled. Alarmist excursions and the blowing of trumpets over the field of Aging Court, court kings in full armour rushing about, crying for destriers, the French word, for what would what we would call a cob, compact and thick-set. He charges like a destrier in the Henrys, and after the charge retires to a hawthorn tree and neighs a melodious plaint of graves and worms and epitaphs. But Balzac appealed to me for a moment, and my eyes ran through the titles of the edition printed in 1855, a prize brought back from Paris some months ago, but never looked into. Treated... Alas, like a wife, a sort of matrimonial edition, and only known to me by a long attempt to read Caesar Bureau, an adventure that had stopped halfway. So cumbersome was the burly Turinian in this story, so slow was he to rise like a cart horse asleep in the middle of the road, too heavy to struggle to his hooves in less than a hundred pages, but getting away at last. His ends are no doubt fine and thunderous all the time. Turgenev didn't believe in him, and glancing down a line of small volumes, I said, Turgenev is neither cob nor dray, but an Arab carrying in every story a lady, as romantic as one of Chopin's ballads, especially the third, and I thought of the celebrated phrase. More poisson detained me for a moment, and then, seemed to me too much like an intrigue with a housemaid. Goncourt, the fashion of yesterday and today older than Herodotus. Pater, he's a Epicurean, a tide of honeyed words preached by a divine from an ivory pulpit. Well worth reading, but... And I returned to my chair, frightened, feeling that if I did not learn to read, my life would become a burden to me and to others. Everybody will fly from me. My friends will melt away. Edward, Edward wouldn't open to me the other night. He preferred his book to my talk. And he continues to struggle through Ruskin and John Eglinton toils at Don Quixote. These fellows can live alone. And A.E., well, ah, uh, A.E. And then my thoughts left me. I read the newspaper and at a quarter to eleven lit my candle, hoping that in bed some interesting book would come to mind. But... When Teresa had removed the cloth next night, and the moment for choosing had come again, I was unable to conquer a mysterious reluctance. It seemed pleasanter to think about Stevenson than to read him, and of all, to remember that I had once called him a young man walking in Burlington Arcade, the best-dressed young man that ever walked in the Burlington Arcade. But little else. We writers know how to get the knife under the other fellow's ribs. I raised my head to listen. Footsteps sounded in the street, 
and it seemed as if somebody was coming to see me. The moment grew tense and relaxed, and when the footsteps of the wanderer died away, in the distance of Hume Street I sat, limp and miserable, afraid to look round lest somebody should be crouching in the corner of the distant room. But I had come home to read, and read I must, and it seemed to me that what was needed was some long work that would leave a definite impression upon the mind. There was Tom Jones, professors of literature declare it to be England's finest novel, but I remember it merely as a very empty work, written in a breezy manner. And there was Richardson, whom I had not read at all, Clarissa Harlow, in how many volumes of letters, and after these writers came Miss Burney, and the name of one of her books floated through my mind, the name of some woman, Emily Julia, no, there was Stern's Sentimental Journey, still unread, and someone had given me a copy saying that no one would ever appreciate Stern more than I, but my cigar was burning so fragrantly that Stern was again postponed, and I lay back in my armchair, dozing in the warmth of that huge lump of coal sent out from the grate, and my brain stupefied in the heat. I said to myself, though I may have lost the habit of reading, I have acquired, perhaps more than any other human being, another habit, the habit of thinking. I love my own thoughts, and the past is a wonderful mirror in which I spend hours watching people in places I have known, dim, shadowy, and far away they seem, and pathetic are the faces, and still more pathetic is the way everybody follows his little prejudices. However unreasonable they may be, we must follow them. The colonel said the other day that he could accept all that his church teaches. Trans, uh, transubstantiation, the Immaculate Conception, even the Pope's indulgences did not trouble him. He found it difficult, however, to believe in the immortality of his soul. If death deprives me of my senses of feeling and seeing of my intellect, of everything that is me, how can it be said that I exist? He asked, shielding his face with his hand from the fire. How can it be said that I, the personality connoted by the pronoun, exist? We are all agnostics at heart. And there it seemed to me that the colonel and I were engaged in some argument, not about the immortality of the soul, but about a letter that I had written to the Irish Times in which he declared that I had libelled him, and then my father seemed to have come back to this world again, and picking up the letter about which my brother and I were disputing, he declared that he could detect no libel in it, but a great many misspellings and mistakes in grammar, and that I must go back to Oscott at once. I was there in a trice, face to face, with the headmaster, no other than Sir Thomas More, who was deeply shocked at any descendant of his use the language as badly as I had done in the bundle of papers which he held in his hand. The thought of undergoing further school days awoke me suddenly, and at the same moment the door opened. Good heavens, who is it? What is it? It was only Teresa bringing in glasses and decanters, and when I had recovered my senses sufficiently, I began to think of the two portraits of Sir Thomas More brought about Ashbrook. The heavy monkish jowl and the cocked hat had often awakened a frightened antipathy in me, setting me thinking that there must be a fine strain of Protestant blood flowing in the Moors, but which was the one who discovered himself to be a Protestant. 
I moved to the writing table and wrote, asking the colonel for his name, and a few days after, Teresa handed me an envelope on which I recognised my brother's handwriting and making at once for my armchair, I read that Sir Thomas More had married twice, begetting a son and three daughters by his first wife. These had remained papists, and it was not till the second generation that the change came. John had two sons, both called Thomas. The elder founded the line of Barnborough, now extinct, but the younger Thomas discovered himself to be a Protestant, and the colonel reminded me that if I decided to throw over Sir Thomas More, I should also have to throw over the honour of having a Protestant clergyman in the family. The clergyman had three sons, of whom little is known except their names. Two of them went to live in Essex. The third, another Thomas, disappeared into Mayo, it is said. This tradition the colonel wrote, finds support in the fact that there was a Thomas More in Mayo in the 17th century who had a son called George, and this George took part in the Willemite Wars in Ireland, and it appears that he may must have conducted himself well at the Battle of Boyne, for King William bestowed on him the title of Vice Admiral of Connaught, a title which he held twice, considerable titles still, for its present holder is Lord Ducan. He was buried near Strait Abbey in Mayo, with this inscription upon his tomb, this is the burial place of Captain George Moore and his descendants, 1723. His son obtained a lease of some property known as Legafuerca. And from this deed, we learn that he had two sons, George and John, and that John married Miss Jane Lynch Athee at Renville, a Catholic, and brought her to live with him at Ashbrook. Of this marriage, there were two sons. One died, and the surviving son, George, seeing that the family fortunes were dwindling, sailed away to Spain and became a Catholic. But why doesn't he tell me our great-grandfather's reason for preferring Rome to Canterbury? And taking a cigar out of the box, I lay back on my armchair whilst smoke, watching the smoke ascend into the crystals of the chandelier. I tarnished them, and diverting my thoughts from my great-grandfather, I remembered that the whole chandelier must soon be taken to pieces and cleaned, and that on the night of our quarrel, or rather the following morning, the colonel had told me that our great-grandfather married a Miss Kilkelly, a Spaniard despite her name. If a hundred years of Spain can turn a Milesian back into a Spaniard, Wild geese, these Kilkillies were, fled from Ireland after a siege of Limerick, a handsome woman in a green silk dress heavily flounced, her hands on the keys of a spinet. The kind of woman who would tempt a man to become a Catholic, a merchant interested above all in his business and only faintly in religious questions. It was she that did it, and he felt no repugnance in being bedded with a papist strange. A little later, another explanation emerged as a wreath of smoke curled upwards into the chandelier. My great-grandfather had changed his religion before getting out of Spain, setting out for Spain, knowing well that a Protestant, he could not trade in a country where the Inquisition was still going, a going concern. He became a Catholic. As a precautionary measure, I said and wrote that very night that the colonel, asking for the date of our grandfather's conversion, the reply of this question came a few days afterwards. It was not mentioned in my family paper, but... One thing was for sure, sexual reasons did not determine it, for no religious difficulty in connection with his marriage had arisen. You must remember he wrote that our great-grandfather's mother was a Catholic, and it was probably the mother's influence. How little these papists understand religion, I said, and walked about the room muttering. He could not very well ask me to picture the great merchant retiring to his room after business hours to read the fathers so he could conclude... So he concludes that it was his mother's influence that effected the conversion. 
Arai Schiffer's pictures of St. Augustine and Monica rose up before my eyes and I vowed that it was kelp that had turned my great-grandfather into a papist. Much better it should have been kelp than campus, I said. Much better for me, and it amused me to think of the ships laden with seaweed coming round the Bay of Biscay from the Aran Islands to my great-grandfather in Alicante, and the burnt kelp filling the iron chest still at Moor Hall and quickly with Ducast, and my great-grandfather returning to Ireland a sort of mercantile pirate of the Spanish main. The colonel's letter told me that it was with £250,000 he returned on the lookout for investments for his money and for a site whereon the build, to build the fine Georgian house he had in mind. He would have built it in Ashbrook if there had been prospect, but there being none, he brought Mucloon, a pleasant green hill overlooking Loch Carrar, and the colonel mentioned that our great-grandfather used to sit on the steps of Moor Hall, his eyes fixed on the lake. I have travelled far, he is reported to have said, but have seen nothing as beautiful as Loch Carrar and he is reported truly, for such simple words are not invented. The phrase evokes a picture, a morning in early May, and an elderly man sitting, his eyes fixed on a lake set among two sh low shores, still as a mirror, a mirror on which somebody has breathed, an elderly man in a wig and a scarlet coat. It is thus that he is apparelled in the portraits that hang in the dining room, painted when and by whom there is no record. In it he is a man of 30, and when he was 30, he was in Alcante. It is pleasant to have a portrait of one's ancestors in a wig and in a vermilion coat with gold lace buttons, white lace at the collar and cuffs, probably a Spanish coat of the period. The face is long, sheep-like, and distinguished. A true Moor face, as it has come down to us. My brother Augustus was the living image of his great-grandfather, the same long face, the same long, delicately shaped nose. Without, however, the gay eyes, cloudless as a child's. No face ever told the tale of a happy life more plainly, nor could it be else. Everything having succeeded within him, with him. He seems to have run misfortune clear out of sight, but he had made a little too much running, and was overtaken in the last few years. On awakening, one morning... He asked his valet why he had not opened the shutters. The servant answered that he had opened them, but the room was dark. No, sir, the room is quite light. Then I am blind, he said. I've just decided that that's the end of the reading. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.